Mark chapter 10 with me. We're going to actually be in the same passage that we were last week, but we'll be finishing it up. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. We'll read down through verse 31. Now things are not always what they seem. My senior year of high school, I did vocational technical training for the better part of the day. The first half of the year, I did it all day. And uh, I had machining, the trade I was in, and then I also had drafting. Uh, and my drafting teacher, Mick, showed me a picture of this incredible buck that he had shot. Uh, I mean, it had uh, good mass on the rack. It was non-typical, you know, it had points in all sorts of directions, you know, it was, it was a unique buck. And uh, it turned out to be very unique because when he got onto the next step of the process, it turned out to be a doe. So he was surprised. I'm not sure how he tagged that one, but he got to be in the papers over it. Uh, it was a rare genetic anomaly. I guess that happens sometimes. Uh, things are not always what they seem. And we're going to see that in our text today. Jesus is going to talk about the first being last and vice versa. Beyond that, things are often not even what we would expect. But the Lord will prove his ability to care for us, as we'll see in our passage this morning. So let's read together in our text. I'll be starting in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for speaking truth to us. You, O oh God, are truth itself, and you have spoken truth to us. Thank you for speaking truth to us, to set us aright in this day. and Thank you for sending your Son to save us, Lord. We love you. Pray that you would help us as we look into this text. In Jesus' name, amen. 
We've seen already the call to follow Christ wholeheartedly. That overflows in generosity and submitting to Christ in everything. Well, as we look at the last part of this passage, we can see the call to follow Christ wholeheartedly because he will take care of you now and forever. And as we look into this, we can see gospel gain. So we look through this passage and we can see gospel loss. As we look through this passage, let's start here with gospel gain. You know, last week we saw Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. He was called by Jesus to give everything away and come and follow Christ. We also saw that he was not willing to give it up for Christ. Uh, for the follower of Jesus, and the call that he's made on our lives, we have submitted everything to him. All our possessions, all our relationships, our dreams, and our very life itself, we have submitted to Christ. This rich young man was not willing to do that. He chose the good life over eternal life. And Jesus warns his disciples here in this passage, and he warns us now that wealth is often eternally dangerous for people. It's an, it can be an eternally dangerous asset. But salvation, which is impossible for man, is possible with God. We find here the hope uh, that Christ does offer salvation, and he offers it freely to his people. It's in light of what we've seen in these verses ahead that we're turning now to verse 28 to 31. Peter says to Jesus, in light of this interaction, he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. You know, I have to imagine that the apostles were a bit rattled by this experience. Uh, remember, they ask, who then can be saved? Uh, it seems like they're getting a, a bit introspective now in this moment. Uh, in comparison to this rich young ruler who was not willing to sell it all to follow Jesus, Peter points to the fact that they have left everything to follow Jesus. seems to be asking, what about us? Uh, you know, perhaps Peter is fishing for some assurance from Jesus that they're on the right track. If not even this guy is going to make it, what about us? Jesus, in his response to Peter, is reassuring. And he's also sobering. Yes, Peter and the others have left it all. They've left family and house and lands. Jesus says here, though, that God is going to outpace them in giving to them. God will multiply what they have given a hundredfold, but not without persecution. And they will, in fact, find eternal life in the age to come. I want to come back to the sobering note in a little bit as he talks about persecution, but I don't want to miss the assurance that Jesus gives his disciples here. Uh, the cost of discipleship is high, yes. We've seen that in Mark chapter 8. It's going to cost them everything. Uh, and these disciples have given it all. But the reality is that God is going to outgive them. They have left brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children, houses, and lands. Uh, and perhaps we have too. Uh, but they will all receive 100-fold. Now that is really an incredible promise from Jesus. In our zeal to fight the prosperity gospel, which we should, we don't want to lose the beauty of what Jesus is saying here 
to his disciples and what he's saying to us. Have you paid a heavy cost to follow Christ? Maybe it has cost you family relationships. Maybe you have friendships that are strained because of your determination to follow Jesus. Maybe you got held back from a promotion at work because you didn't want to cut an ethical corner because you couldn't do that before God, your true boss. God will give to you beyond anything that you have ever given to him. I'm not saying that there's not real loss, because there is. But if we will accept it, God will bless us beyond anything we have given. Now, Mark is writing this. He's recording this and preserving it for us three decades after Jesus has said this. This is likely being written in the 60s, somewhere in the mid-60s A.D., likely under the reign of Nero, and Christians are being put to death for following Christ. Let me tell you, if Mark thought that this was a farce, that what Jesus is saying here was empty, he wouldn't have recorded it. I think the fact that he has recorded it should tell us that Mark has seen this to be proved true in God's providence. We might ask, how has this been fulfilled? If Jesus talks about all these things being given a hundredfold, how exactly does this get fulfilled? Now, I think we got a picture of this last night, or last Wednesday night at our Bible study. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, pre Peter preaches to a huge crowd gathered on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 repent and believe in Jesus that day. It was a decisive moment in their lives. They were never the same after that. That regeneration and conversion experience overflowed into a new life together uh, as the body of Christ. I want to read that passage. It's a foundational passage to our church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see that? There's the new family right there. There is the new security of home and lands. Yes, they have given everything to follow Jesus, but they have received an abundance that goes beyond anything that they have given. When we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus by faith alone, we relinquish uh, any claim that we might have on our own lives. Uh, and when we do that, we are left with each other, and we are left with those who have made that same commitment. Through Christ, we have been given fellowship with God and with one another. We should not think that God intended us to do the Christian life alone. If God has offered and promised us fellowship in the family of faith, then we should press into what he has given. If you don't have deep relationships with other believers, you need to start praying that God would grant you that and seek it. If your possessions and time and hobbies are of such a priority that you don't have any time in your life for other believers, then you need to take stock of your life. 
a robust individualism is very American, uh, but at least in this regard, it's not very Christian. The fact that you are here this morning demonstrates that you desire fellowship. You desire to break bread together and to devote yourselves to the teaching of scriptures and the word. So I'm not trying to guilt you all this morning, but I am surprised in my experience in Christianity uh, by how often believers neglect what God has offered and what he has commanded us to receive. You know, I fully believe that the church of America in our generation, when we stand before Christ, will be surprised by how little our priorities lined up with what Christ called us to. How little we gave ourselves to the sweet promises that he offered us in the fellowship of other believers. He died to save us, and Christ died to bring us together. We must not stop with the blessing of salvation and neglect the blessing of fellowship. You know, on earth, I have one dad, and I love him very much. But in Christ, I have many fathers of the faith. I could spend a good amount of time telling you about the different men who have invested in my life over the years. I could tell you a lot of stories about women who were mothers in the faith to me. I could tell you about being dirt poor and being sustained by the generosity of other believers in their love for me. I have found this promise to be true. Believers over the years have found it to be true. Now, I was blessed to have parents who pointed me in the right direction, but I know some of you were not blessed with that. But we have all been blessed by those who are further on in the faith, who have encouraged us on, and to trust in Christ and to grow in him. You know, when it comes to money, it's possible that God has not led you through days of precarious finances. But if you do, then I encourage you to take the painful step of admitting it and reaching out for help. It is our desire as a fellowship to care for each other. If you have a need or if you're aware of a need, I invite you to bring that to the attention of the, the leaders of this church. We would love to step in and help where there is a need. We want to meet needs as we're able. And I know that many of you are generous without even being asked. I know the love of the people in this room, and I know that your sneaky generosity escapes the notice of the public eye. But the Lord, who sees in secret, will reward you. So we might give everything to follow Jesus, but God will outgive us if we will accept what he gives. There's another blessing that Jesus mentions here, and that far excels what we've just been looking at. Jesus promises uh, here, he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now this isn't a this for that kind of promise. Jesus is not saying, if you pay me enough, then I'll let you into heaven. We've got to keep in mind the fact that God doesn't need our stuff. Uh, you know, listen to what God says to his people as he's spanking them in Psalm 50, verses 7 to 12. God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness is mine." Did you catch that? God owns everything, everywhere, 
all the time. You know, we only think we own stuff, but as it turns out, God owns it all anyway. So God doesn't need our stuff. Uh, he already owns it. The true God is not like some Greek God in need of being served by man, nor is he in need of our possessions so that he can stay solvent. God not only has everything he needs, God is everything he needs. And when he saves, he saves us freely. His salvation is free to us. Salvation doesn't come by relinquishing our stuff. It, does, it comes by trusting in Christ and submitting our souls to him. And when we do that, we give everything over to Christ. We submit our lives and everything to him. It is the heart that is submitted to Christ through faith and repentance that receives eternal life. And that's our greater promise that we see in this passage. Yes, God will take care of us in this life. We can be assured that God will care for us. But he will take care of us through eternity, through his son Jesus Christ. You know, we're tempted to think that the provision that God would give us in this life is greater than the provision he's made for us in eternity. But that's the other way around. You know, God made everything that exists out of nothing. It wasn't some pre-existing material that he reshaped and fashioned. God made it all out of nothing by speaking it into existence. Do you think it's hard for God to provide for us if his heart is set to do that? Of course it's not. God has no problem providing for us. He can provide everything we need, and that is really nothing to him. That is no hardship for him. But the cost of our eternal salvation was expensive. It comes free to us, but it was an incredibly high cost to God. The Heavenly Father sent his Son to come and secure our salvation. Jesus, who was eternally rich, impoverished himself to come to this earth. And talk about a cut and pay. He left the wealth of heaven to be born in a manger, to be born and laid into a feeding trough for animals. He who experienced the fullness of joy and fellowship with the Father for all eternity came and experienced the abandonment of the cross. He paid the price that our sins deserve. The author of life drank down the curse of our sin and took our death upon himself. The wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. And Jesus took that paycheck from our account and paid that debt on the cross. And in its place, he deposited the wealth of his perfect righteousness. The righteousness that he accrued through his earthly ministry was credited to our account when we believed in him. So Jesus died for us. He gave up his very precious life to save us. And yet, death had no claim on this holy and righteous one. And so, death, broken by Christ, had to give him up. The father raised his son from the dead. He received his son into heaven through the ascension. And there Christ waits and reigns, and he will come back for us. Brothers and sisters, we are the richest of all people. We may be mocked and rejected by this world. 
We may even know the pinch of poverty, but in Christ we are rich. God will take care of us, and through his Son he has taken care of us through eternity. So why do we fret so much? Why do we wring our hands in the day that we live? Isn't God able to take care of us? Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Set your heart on God, seek his kingdom and righteousness, and he will take care of you. Accept the family that he has given you in Christ. Even better, pursue the family that he has given you in Christ. Let your priorities in this world reflect the priorities of your heavenly father. And you will find that God is faithful to all that he has promised. So there is great gain in the gospel for those who have cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus and submitted everything to him. Let's look a little more briefly now at gospel loss as we continue in our passage. With this right understanding, this passage in mind, I think we can see more clearly how a text like this has been abused in our generation. Uh, you are probably well aware that some have sought to use this language of a hundredfold in ways that go in the opposite direction of the point of this passage. Uh, some have been so bold as to say things like, if you give their ministry $1,000, God's going to turn that back to you as $100,000 if you just have enough faith and you wait and you give in faith. Now, there are two things that are devastatingly wrong about that false promise. First, it twists the beauty of what Jesus is actually saying here. It misses the beauty of the body of Christ sacrificing to give to Christ and self-sacrificing for one another. And second, it shamelessly contradicts the very message of this text. You know, the whole point of this passage, the story of the rich young ruler, is that he has set his heart on a false god. He has made wealth his god. And Jesus is saying that he will never enter the kingdom of God until he quits that idol worship. The gospel that promises prosperity in this world might actually encourage the worship of the false god of wealth. If God becomes a stepping stool to something else that you actually want, then that thing has become your God, and you're trying to use the God of the Bible to get that. But Yahweh is a jealous God. You know, he has never played very nicely with idols. He has a fine way of crushing them. And if we, as his children, flirt with the false God of wealth, we may find that God touches our finances uh, in painful ways. He loves us too much to let us wander far from him. Now this passage does promise us great wealth, but it's not in the form of a fat bank account. God is generous to us in this life, and there will be persecutions that come with it. There is pain in following Christ at times, but he is able to sustain us through it all. That brings us to our last verse here. I'll read it again, verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's interesting that this saying is used by Matthew and Mark and Luke, and in each gospel, there's a little bit of a different emphasis to it. Luke emphasizes the fact that the Gentiles, who are far away, they're last, and yet some of them will be coming into the kingdom ahead of the people who this promise originally came to. You see the emphasis of the first and the last with the Gentiles and the Jews in Luke. 
Matthew makes a point similar to Mark, as we'll see. Uh, but he also seems to reference the rewards in heaven uh, in the parable of the day workers. Uh, and Jesus summarizes with this point. Mark seems to emphasize the fact that although people like this rich young ruler seem to have it made, it may not go so well for them in the judgment. Uh, people often attribute wealth in this day. They attributed wealth to divine favor. So if somebody was rich in this day, somebody would think, well, he's been blessed by God. That's how he came by his finances. Mark seems to emphasize the fact that this may not be so. Uh, in fact, they might be last. And instead, some who are treated like the scum of the earth for Christ and for his gospel will turn out to be those who are actually favored by God. It can be such a strange thing. Things are not always what they appear. The beloved children of God may be troubled and afflicted their whole lives through, and the enemies of God may flourish. But you know, that's nothing new. We see the saints of the Old Testament struggling through these very things. If you want to see a vivid picture of that, you can read Psalm 73 as Asaph is struggling with the fact that the wicked prosper. Uh, and it, He goes into the temple and, and sees their end, and he comes, comes to his senses by seeing God. Far from a gospel of prosperity and peace and health, we may find trouble in this world. We may find those persecutions. We might not look like those who are seated with Christ in heavenly places, as Ephesians 2 tells us, but we are. Our lives may not always look like we are favored by God, but through Christ we are favored by God. There may be gospel loss in this life, but there is also true gospel gain in Christ, an eternal life in the age to come. So in this age, we must follow Christ wholeheartedly, knowing that he will take care of us now. He loves us. He will meet our needs. And he has put us together as a church family to look out for one another. That's part of his means of provision and taking care of each other. And he has provided for us for all eternity in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, I'll invite Maggie to come and play and the men to prepare for communion as we go to prayer together now.